you know that's what that's shane that's that's literally every western movie it's like i came in i did my work i'm not meant to stay i, I gotta yeah. move on it's also mary poppins too that's the other thing <laughs> it is is mary poppins a samurai <laughs> And welcome to the episode of Center Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here at Center Nation, we spend each month discussing film genres and the tropes within them. And for September, we are going to be discussing a topic that isn't fully a genre, but it is something that's always kind of interested me and has has tropes. And for September, we're going to be analyzing movie sequels and the tropes and storylines that are used throughout these movie sequels. Um, we will mainly be focusing on the first movie sequel in a series. So no, like chapter threes or fours or five, if you're in the, the fast and the furious franchise. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of these rules that we're going to discuss and these tropes and storylines uh, for some of these movies are very prevalent and present in many future chapters of other franchises. So, so Thomas, mm-hmm. What do you think of when you think of movie sequels, like in terms of stories or just like anything? It's a very broad topic. So um, usually think, you know, not great. <laughs> <laughs> just going to throw that out there. I mean, I, I, I think sequels are generally thought of as like fairly weak and usually like a cash grab. I think yeah. a lot of times it's just something that it's like, OK, the last one made money. Let's let's do this again. Yeah, uh, I think I think one one we don't really have down to talk about, but I think that is a great one to to talk about when you, we are talking tropes is 22 Jump Street because it yeah. wears all of its tropes like on its sleeve. And, and you know, they keep harping in that movie. They're like, all right, guys, we're bringing you back for another mission. Everybody <laughs> loved the last mission. So just do it exactly the same over yeah. again. And they're like, no, nah, we want to try something different. And they're like, that's not why we brought you back. <laughs> we brought you back because you did a good job last time. So do that again. And that's um that could be what it feels like sometimes. But that, yeah, I think what, what we're going to kind of show this this month is that that mode of thinking doesn't always apply like m- sometimes movies really are made because there's more story to be told yeah and i think that comes a lot from like literature i mean there are there are se- there are great sequels in literature long before the film franchise i mean the you know three musketeers going into man in the iron mask like there that that's 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 continuing the story of characters is something that's long held within I mean, going back to like Greek mythology, you know, what's, <laughs> what's the Odyssey, if not a sequel to the Iliad? Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so you got to You got to kind of wade through a lot of the cash, the cash grabs to find the gold. But, um, you know, within within the the tropes for better or for worse is a lot of times if if there's a happy ending at the end of your last movie, which, you know, most movies have them. Yeah. You have to find a way to complicate that because usually usually you know the first movie involves like overcoming an obstacle learning something about yourself and then the second movie is going to need to have that journey again basically so there need to be new lessons there need to be new obstacles and they need to be bigger than bigger and more difficult than the ones before yeah that's a a big thing that will come into play a lot is is uh what i guess we can title sequel escalation where mm-hmm. everything escalates in some way. If it's more, they raise the stakes. It's uh, 
if it's a horror film, you're you're upping the violence, you're upping the body count. If uh, if you listen to Randy Meeks and Scream Two, like you're 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 having to top the first one. Yeah, and where and where I think that shows, and we we don't ha- really have the any of these to to speak about, but I think that weakness that really shows as a weakness in in romance sequels. Yeah. Because you have to, you usually almost always you just go okay. Well, I'll break them up again and make them fall back in love, and that is like nobody wants to see that. No, know? Um, we just we just watch them fall in love. We loved it because yeah. we watched them fall in love. We don't want to see them break up now. Yeah, you don't see a lot of romance sequels out there. Yeah, no, it's it's tough. It's a tough call. Um, yeah. One I one I was talking about with someone actually very recently was um, Jewel of the Nile, which I don't really care for, but it's like yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, we just, um, yeah, we just spent this whole movie. Yeah, it was an adventure movie, but we also spent it. You know, it's a romance. It's yeah, it was ro- it was, it was it a romance you adventure. Into, like, okay, they're they're like happily ever after. Wasn't happily ever after, but <laughs> guess what? It will be by the end of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that definitely feels like it's a cash grab. Like, oh, that movie was very successful. We love Michael Douglas playing this like swashbuckling adventurer or whatever, and Kathleen Turner playing this like uh out fish out of water type story of this rider in the jungle let's put him somewhere else um that's a that's a that's a good point also too to go back in your literature thing it's also that's also a valid point too of like i think of i think of like mark twain's novels how you had mm-hmm. characters of tom sawyer and huckleberry finn like going in and out of different stories and doing multiple books about those characters yeah, like, yeah, I mean, every Shakespeare did it, and you know, it's shared, yeah. shared universes. People, yeah, people were on on that a long time ago. Yeah, and so that's my thing too, because I wanted to bring it up in this episode of why I also want to discuss this, because I feel like some people believe sequels just like dominated the movies within the past twenty years, and in reality, mm-hmm. sequels have always been a part of films in some yeah. way. And remakes, you know, everybody says, "Oh, I've had it with these Disney live-action remakes." You know, the 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 Maltese Falcon that we think of as the Maltese Falcon movie was like the third or first, the third version third or fourth, of it, yeah, the third version, yeah, the third adaptation of that book, like within like twenty years. I mean, like Wizard of Oz, that was that was, uh, I feel like the third or so adaptation of the Wizard of Oz. I mean, even when when Hollywood was coming in out of the silent era and into the sound era, what you started to see too was remakes of silent films like 10 years after they came out. So everyone complains about getting multiple Spider-Man, but back then you're getting probably like multiple Zoros or You'll multiple, have your multiple Spider-Man. And you'll be happy about it. <laughs> but like you were getting like, okay, Douglas Fairbanks. He's not, he's not around anymore. He was our silent film star. Let's get Errol Flynn to remake all of his movies. Mm-hmm. That became, a big thing and then you get into the 30s and and horror films arrive or um even detective stories you like you start seeing like serialized versions of these characters like if it's the thin man series that had like six or seven movies of following this kind of detective couple doing all these different stories and, and they and they follow kind of the the sequel rules or tropes we're going to talk about or even like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going very deep cuts here. I apologize. But like the Andy Hardy series with like Mickey Rooney, where it's like, we're going to do like 10 or 12 of these. And it's just going to be the family of the Hardy family. Because I'm sorry for those who don't know the Andy Hardy series. But basically, it's like it started off. It's like 
the first movie was uh, Judge Hardy and family or whatever. It was like Judge Hardy, this like Northeastern, like local judge and his family. And they kept doing a bunch of these movies, churning them out. And they realized, oh, wait, no one really cares about the father. They really like the kid, Mickey Rooney. Let's just focus the entire series on him. And mm -hmm. that happens a lot, too, in series where like people pivot and change something up. And we're going to talk about that today. As I'm kind of mentioning kind of the early Hollywood system and to kind of show that sequels didn't just start in the 90s, the 2000s with superhero movies. They've always been present. Uh, we're going to go to, I think, kind of it's one of the most influential sequels of all time. People still see it as one of the best sequels of all time. And that's The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. And it's a sequel to Frankenstein. <laughs> it kind of helped establish the it, the universal horror monsters were big and became big in the 30s. But the Bride of Frankenstein showed that they could, oh, take these characters and keep bringing them back and not just do one-offs. So you see Bride of Frankenstein, you see Dracula's daughter, you see the Invisible Man Returns. And Bride of Frankenstein kind of sets that up. So Thomas, you watched Bride of Frankenstein today before we recorded Correct. Or was it yesterday? Yeah, no, I watched, watched it last it? night. Yeah. Last night. Okay. So what is Bride of... Also, too, there might be some spoilers to the first films that we talk about here, but we'll try to spoil if, the sequels if, for if you. If you don't know, if, you, if you're if you getting Frankenstein spoilers, then I'm going to call your ninth grade English teacher and I'm going to tell on you that you didn't read Frankenstein when it was assigned to you. <laughs> Did, were you. Were you assigned Frankenstein? I was assigned Frankenstein in college is what it was. Really? Yeah, I think college. I, I think it was it was a summer book for us. I think it was tenth grade. Yeah, we. Oh, I'm sorry, you're saying that we're I'm dumber than you. Basically, what you're saying. No, 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 no. Oh, I mean, I, I was never assigned Romeo and Juliet. I, I read that like. Oh like, wow. It was it was sometime around like tenth grade. I was like, should we have read Romeo and Juliet by now? And I just kind of read it on my. <laughs> that yeah, that was freshman year for me, Romeo and Juliet. But no, Frankenstein. Even though the original '30s version is still kind of different from. Uh, the remake or the book um, and Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein kind of combine a little bit of the book in both of them. Mm, um, yeah. But, but what is Bride of Frankenstein about Thomas? Yeah, it has a, it has a really interesting framing yeah, device where it, it does. Like opens with kind of the true story of Mary Shelley and, and her husband and, um, and uh, Lord Byron um, it's kind of sitting around on a stormy night and they're like, hey, let's tell ghost stories, which is where the original novel came from. Yeah. But this time it's like, oh, hey, you've already told us that story. Tell us a new story. And and Lord Byron is kind of teasing her. He's like, too bad you killed off all your characters or you couldn't you couldn't tell. You could tell another story about Frankenstein's monster. And she's like, oh, ho, ho, they're not <laughs> dead. So it's 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 you know, you can't even really call it meta because the the sequel tropes aren't really established at that point. So it's. You know, if, if if you made a if you made a movie these days and you opened it with this narrative framing, yeah. you'd be like, hey, I really enjoyed that last story, but too bad everyone's dead. And then the other person was like, gotcha, <laughs> they're not dead. You'd be like, wow, that's so meta. But um, you can't even like, I can't even call it that. Now. I'll, I'll call it meta, but I don't think it was like what was interesting when thinking about when watching it, because you had because it came out four years, I think four years after the the original film and the movie, as as Thomas is saying, starts off with the. The framing device of, oh, ho, 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 but here's what actually happened. The weirder part to me in that sequence is when 
Lord Byron's like, oh yeah, and then this happens, and then that happened, and they're just replaying the first movie to you, yeah. like you, yeah. like you, yeah, they're giving you a little like on the last. It's a episode. recap, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. it's like on the last episode of Frankenstein, you missed when uh, Doctor Frankenstein made a monster out of a dead body, and then he revolted, and the and the and the community went crazy. Yeah, remember that? Remember yeah. that, Mary Shelley? Remember that story you told us last time? Astonishing creature. I, Lord Byron. Frightened of thunder, fearful of the dark, and yet you have written a tale that sent my blood into icy creeps. <laughs> Look at her, Shelley. Can you believe that bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein? A monster created from cadavers out of rifled graves? Isn't it astonishing? I don't know why you should think so. What do you expect? Such an audience needs something stronger than a pretty little love story. So why shouldn't I write of monsters? No wonder Murray's refused to publish the book. He says his reading public would be too shocked. It will be published, I think. Then, darling, you will have much to answer for. The publishers did not see that my purpose was to write a moral lesson. The punishment that befell a mortal man who dared to emulate God. Because you got you got to remember that, like, nowadays, if when this happens, when a sequel comes out, we... We rent it on Amazon, or if you're like me, I go to the video store. That this happened in the '90s and 2000s. Like you'd go find a way to rewatch the first one so you can catch up on this new one. Or if you're if it's a TV show, you go binge the the previous season to catch up on the new season. And you gotta think about in the '30s, there was no way to do that. Like you couldn't just go. Okay, remember what happened in this movie four years ago? Like so, they're ha they're probably thinking, okay, how do we like catch people up? that might have forgotten what happened in Frankenstein, but also, in case you didn't see Frankenstein, you'll know what's going to happen in this movie. And that's kind of what it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once once you get that whole catch-up, it really stands alone. Yeah, it on does. On its own. But, yeah, so the, the, the plot is that both Dr. Frankenstein and the monster survived the burning yeah. of the windmill. Yeah. And now the monster kind of escapes into the wilderness and meets a blind man who teaches him to speak. And meanwhile, uh, Dr. Frankenstein is kind of blackmailed into helping his former mentor, Dr. Pretorius, yeah. uh, build a new a, a female monster, and so which becomes the idea of the Bride of Frankenstein. And so Pretorius enlists the help of the monster by promising him a bride. Yeah, and basically Pretorius is wanting to start a whole new, like race of people basically of just like yeah. so they can procreate and he can create monsters and it's it's the the of gods and monsters line that he says when like when he's talking to dr frankenstein also too mm -hmm. with dr Fra with, the, with the original frankenstein it actually it shows frankenstein dr frankenstein surviving at the end it's like he's like that's the part that i always forget is that doc they showed dr frankenstein surviving and marrying his wife and like oh we're gonna have a grandkid oh a happy day like it just <laughs> and so like this one is definitely kind of not I won't say rebooting but it's definitely coming in like okay let's forget that 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 well that's that tag that's the happens. beauty of that's the beauty of bringing Mary Shelley in on it is now you have like her authority going like yeah. nope uh uh I'm changing it and and the actress who plays Mary Shelley Elsa Lanchester I love she's, her I'm a huge she's fan also, she's also she's the one that plays the Bride of Frankenstein yeah 
she's um she's someone you would probably recognize uh she she's had a great career as she kind of started as a leading lady and as she got a little older really leaned yeah. into being like a comedic character actress yeah and just absolutely killed it um we've talked about uh witness for the prosecution on this yes. on this show before it's a personal favorite of mine and she is fantastic in it playing alongside her husband yeah uh she's also in a lot of like uh 60s live action disney film she's in mary mm-hmm. poppins blackbeard's ghost which we also talked about on the show before <laughs> yep. but yeah brian frankenstein it so establishes a few things as you're saying it it does have this meta-ness to it but you can tell i don't know if they meant to do that in the way that we think of meta nowadays mm-hmm. but it does establish a little bit of that meta quality that comes up in, in certain sequels usually comedies yeah but it also establishes kind of this part two aspect of the sequel because a lot of films not a lot but certain sequels go okay especially with horror films is that how can we literally just like let's just start right where we left off Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we talked about this with Kwame Salas on James Bond, how it was one of the rare films of that franchise to do that. And Briar Frankenstein starts right where the first one ended. And it's like, oh, we didn't kill the monster. The monster's alive. And now it's, it, I mean, the thing is, if you put one in Frankenstein and Briar Frankenstein together, it basically takes place in the same night. Like it's a continuation yeah. of the same thing. Uh, and so much happens in this like one little village. And now in bride he becomes more of a uh sympathetic character yeah well yeah which you know you talked about that the the bride brings in more aspects of the book you know that's something that the first movie doesn't touch on at all is is the monster becoming self-aware and becoming yeah. a very sympathetic and bright individual which they, they don't really hit here but they do you can see you know it's pretty obvious when they said hey let's make a sequel everybody said well let's go back to the book and see what we didn't yeah what what new material we can grab and the idea of of the monster learning to speak is obviously something they're like oh yeah we never we never did that in the last one let's uh let's do that and now boris karloff's a huge star because of that movie we gotta give him some words i mean to talk about like how big karloff was is that in the credits he was just called karloff yeah well, and I love, I love in the credits, they, they, in the, because, you know, they put the title cards at the beginning. They say the bride dot, 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 question mark. Yeah. Which so, they, which um, they did, they did with Karloff in the first one is what it was. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice little twist when you get to the end and you're like, oh, it's Mary Shelley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she, they did that in the first film where they had the question mark. They do it with this one. But yeah, they do like, they try to take those little things that were in the first one and bring back. And also, it's not it's not really a trope but what it kind of helps bring is they they brought back like the same director james whale they brought back the same cast um colin clive who played dr frankenstein would actually pass away two years after this film so like they've brought everyone back together before anything happened and made this film this is also like seen as kind of a it's considered by many as like one of the greatest sequels of all time and it definitely adds on, I don't say it adds on the lore, but it definitely starts pushing more envelopes, especially for the time, because I think the film did get censored a little bit. Because the first film was a pre-code horror film, and pre-code means like before they really start putting in rules and regulations with what you can and can't show on film. 
And then Bride is now being made under the code. So it has to adhere to certain rules that it had to do in the first film. Mm-hmm. What other stuff did you notice that like it kind of sets up in like the sequel uh, tropes? Well, I, I, you know, we talked about trying to like make everything bigger and better. And I was just noticing I've got the, the movie poster pulled up here and the tagline was more fearful than the monster himself. It's the Bride of Frankenstein. And so, you know, the, I think the marketing department at least understood that. I was surprised seeing this for the first time, how small of a role the bride has in this movie. Yep. Very she, much such so. an iconic character, you know, with the with the hair all the way out back and the white streaks down it. And then you and then you watch it and she's in the last like five minutes of the movie. You know, it's it's um, the, the title is is not refer. You know, you, you think, oh, maybe the title is referring to the fact that she's set loose on the town. But it's more about the fact that the entire plot revolves around trying to yeah. make her. And, and so you don't really see her until the end. Now, here's a question, because I thought about I thought about all that, too, when rewatching this. Which one do you think is more iconic? Frankenstein's monster or Bride of Frankenstein or the bride? I mean, I, I still think the monster, because that's that's something that, you know, the, the design of the Boris Karloff Karloff monster has gone far beyond like anything universal could copyright control. I mean, if you, I, I you walk into yeah. You walk into like any Halloween store looking for decorations and they're going to have the like rectangle head yeah. monster, which comes straight out of the Karloff design. So, yeah, I, I think I mean, I still think she's in, incredibly influential. But, yeah. And, and I think for for the amount of influence to screen time ratio. Yeah, she's probably yeah. got a higher she's probably got a higher ratio than 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 the monster just because he's the star of of this movie, especially he's he's in like half of the first movie. But yeah, I think I think it's it's wild going back now to see just how little she it's such uh, iconic imagery that like her yeah. like, wide eyed look like staring straight into the camera after she's yeah. un- un- revealed. But yeah, it's it, it was it was surprising to me for sure. Uh, yeah, I just ask it because like, I mean, with again, with with Frankenstein, there were many sequels to the first movie with Bride of Frankenstein with Son of Frankenstein. I think with Frank uh, house of Frankenstein, a lot of different ones, but she only appears in this one when Frankenstein mm-hmm. is kind of reused over and over again. She's had very few, not just appearance, not just screen time, but also appearances overall. So that's why it's interesting to see. Okay. Overall, the monster Frankenstein's monster is the more influential, mo- more well-known, but as you're saying in terms of, screen time to influence there's not many characters that have had as big of a i guess visual aesthetic influence than the bride and and something you you texted me while you were watching it and i noticed the exact same thing is uh i think a lot of the iconic stuff we think about when we think about the frankenstein movies we can also attribute to the success of young frankenstein yeah um <laughs> and it, it's hard to it's hard to watch this movie for the not first think time of young frankenstein known that movie by heart yeah you know watching the you know the scene with the with the blind man is like oh this is like exactly like the movie <laughs> like the exact conversation like everything <laughs> no, smoke if, good fire good yeah. fire makes smoke <laughs> uh, yeah i texted because i was just like as if many people have made our generation is that we came to see young Frankenstein before we saw any of the classic horror films. But yeah, it's very much like I applaud just as a side thing. I applaud Mel Brooks and his crew and cast for like nailing <laughs> the classic horror fi- film look and mm-hmm. style 40 years after these films were made. Yeah. I think 
you know, we're trying to talk about good sequels here. And, you know, the, I'm not saying this movie wasn't a cash grab. It absolutely was a cash yeah, grab. But I think what we're trying to establish is there, there, you know, there's there's like three, maybe four categories of sequels. Let's let's. Okay. Uh, list them out list them out okay so you got the just the the you watch it and you're like everybody is here for the money period yeah. <laughs> you got the one where everybody is like super excited to come back and it's like we we're not done we're not done with this franchise yet let's let's go let's do it and that's that's what this one kind of feels like it's like hey obviously these universal horror movies are huge they've been doing really well and you know what? We've, we're we're churning out all these new characters, but we really want to come back. We've got Car- Boris Karloff. We're, we've got the whole cast. We really want to come back and do Frankenstein. Uh, and that's what this one feels like. And then there's like the ones where the studio obviously just wanted more money, but the pe- the creative team behind it is like, we're going to take this money and we're going to do something interesting, which I think we're going to talk about at least one or two on this episode that, that we feel that way. And then there's the one that it's just like, obviously the creative team is really behind it. And, and it's not really clear why the studio put up the money up for it because <laughs> probably wasn't a great idea. Mm-hmm. And I know we've got at least one of those today we can talk about as well. What do you want? We must work together. Never. This is outrageous. I'm through with it. I'll have no more of this hell spawn. As soon as I'm well, I'm to be married. And I'm going away. I must beg you to reconsider. You know, do you not, that it is you, really, who are responsible for all those murders? There are penalties to pay for killing people. And with your creature still at large in the countryside... Are you threatening me? Don't put it so crudely. I had ventured to hope that you and I together, no longer as master and pupil, but as fellow scientists, might probe the mysteries of life and death. Never. No further. And reach a goal undreamed of by science. I can't make any further experiments. I've had a terrible lesson. That is sad. Very sad. But you and I have gone too far to stop, nor can it be stopped so easily. I also have continued with my experiments. That is why I am here tonight. You must see my creation. Have you also succeeded in bringing life to the dead? If you, Herr Baron, will do me the honor of visiting my humble abode, I think you will be interested in what I have to show you. After 20 years of secret scientific research and countless failures, I also have created life, as we say, in God's own image. So sequels... Sequel, there there are sequels, like I said, throughout, but sequels never, they don't fully take hold for a number of decades. Um, we want to talk about one, though, that is international sequel. And we don't tend to talk about international films that much on this movie, but I want to talk about this one because th- there, there are some things in it that are very, uh, uh, they're carried over into other films later on. And that's Akira Kurosawa's Sanjuro, which is a sequel to Yojimbo. And Yojimbo is more of like a, it's a samurai movie. It's following the character Sanjuro, who's kind of this like, to, the comparisons to do is compare it to Westerns, because that's very much like the samurai is like the outlaw of a Western movie. And Sanjuro kind of comes from place to place, 
to protect people. And Yojimbo, it's kind of a straight action film and mm. very like heavy sword play. I think it's much more serious. I mean, there there are some definitely some comedic aspects, especially like the villains in Yojimbo are played for laughs a lot. Like there's, you know, there's that one enforcer for the gang who's like very obviously just an idiot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, and, and the character of Sanjuro is played a lot for laughs because he's this character, you know, there's yeah. this whole idea of like the samurai as someone who's like honor bound and yeah. this like, you know, glorious warrior. And, and he yeah. is like, I just want some food. I just want some sake. I just want to drink want some money. Yeah, I want yeah, some, I'm smarter I want some... than every single person in this whole town. And if you all just listen to me, I'll make it all right. And then I want to get paid. Yeah. And I can go off and go, go to sleep somewhere. Mm -hmm. And like, and this, I do think this one plays up the, of Sanjiro being like an old, like a, a tired drunk in a way where mm -hmm. he's just like, ah, I'm here. Like, I'll help you. Like the whole movie starts off with, with these like nine samurai who are discussing uh, th th this meeting they're going to, and they believe that their, their their chamberlain, like I guess the head of their community, is corrupt. And what they begin to find out is that, oh, well, actually, the person who's, who set up this meeting is probably the corrupt one. And uh, Sanjiro is just, like, sleeping in the other room. Don't know how he knows these people. Squatting. Squatting. Yeah, I, think he's, yeah, I think he's, he's just, just straight squatting. up squatting in this, like, random house. And he just, like, wakes up. He's like, yeah, you guys are stupid. Uh this guy that you're that you're friends with is actually going to like trap you probably because of what all you're saying. They're like, no. And then all this guy's men shows up and they're like, Oh, you're right. This guy is corrupt, but it, it, you know, Jimbo has a, has a lot more action to it. And Sanjuro feels more like this, like contained story. If that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. there's really, there's really yeah, only there's, one yeah, big violent scene at the end that's about it yeah and there's really i mean i guess you could say yojimbo doesn't really have that many locations but it's this whole yeah. town that they build yeah. out like they literally yeah. build a, a main street for this town whereas sanjuro is like two houses right next to each other and they're just kind of back and forth between the two houses and but i think it does kind of amp up more comedy like there's certain like like there's the the the, the scenes where like the the mother and daughter that they have kind of helped uh, escape from the the corrupt individuals uh the mother is always on sanjiro for like every time he pulls out his sword it's just like oh you shouldn't do that violence is kind of a bad habit to have mm -hmm. and he's i think exploring i think he's looking more in this movie he's that character's his character's being developed more of like maybe violence isn't always the way behind everything maybe like yeah. pulling out the sword is not the best choice for me and you are seeing him you're seeing him care a little bit more there's yeah the, the scene and i mean because the reason yojimbo works is because he does not care about anyone in that town and so yeah, he's, yeah. he's there to like make the most amount of money off of what he views as like two dumb gangs um yeah. and there's a there's that sequence where he saves the family and he just kind of writes it off as like, yeah, you guys get out of here. I did you a favor. Don't worry about it. And then they, they come back and like put themselves in danger to like, thank him. And he's yeah. like yelling at him to get out. And that's, that's really in that movie. That's the closest you get to seeing like a conscience yeah. um, for him. And th this movie is definitely a lot more like he's, he, he's, I mean, there's, there's the one scene where his, 
his plan is kind of messed up because the the nine kids don't really listen to him and he yeah. has to kill like an entire yard full of people and he goes and like slaps each of them and it was like this massacre is your fault and you know i i don't think that his character in yojimbo would have really cared about that that much yeah i agree i think he's he's very much like a way like he he is wanting to and this one wanted to do as much as possible with killing the least amount of people mm-hmm. and that's kind of what sets up kind of at the a little bit towards the end where he kind of I don't want to say too much with this, but like has to do some basically a, a sword fight, a duel if if, uh, if it's more modern day, and he doesn't want to, like he really mm-hmm. doesn't want to do it, and he's kind of like he sees this other guy who's kind of wanting to fight him as like a younger version of himself, mm-hmm. and he knows like what's going to happen to this guy, and so he doesn't want to fight this guy, and the other young people are all like so excited that he's going to do it when he's just like, I shouldn't be doing this. Like you guys are morons. Like everything I've done for you, you kind of missed the point of like why it happened or something. And it's, and it's a, it's a unique movie. And like I said, it, it what it does kind of help establish is that it does have a little bit of a genre twit, a uh, genre switch where it becomes more of a, drama or even a little bit of a comedy compared to the more action-fueled yojimbo one thing that is you not unique but what's going to kind of happen sometimes with just the making of movies is that sanjuro wasn't supposed to be a sequel to yojimbo uh kurosawa was was writing a different movie that was adaptation of a short story and because it was yojimbo was so successful the studio's like hey you need to put uh sanjuro back in this movie and just like forget your original story you're gonna do put put sanjiro in this thing yeah but i mean it also wasn't that hard for um kurosawa to pull off because tashiro mifune is in all like all of his movies anyway so. exactly yeah it's like cool but yeah i think you could compare this because you know because the the samurai genre had such a heavy influence on the western genre yeah. and and vice versa i think a movie you could really compare this to is like true grit versus rooster cogburn yeah where it's just kind of like the true grit is is an action movie and it's like yeah look at this guy he's got a little bit of a conscience but he's really like a a a cold-blooded killer but we're gonna have this girl like you know bring bring the best out of him and then by rooster cogburn it's like oh he's just kind of a lovable curmudgeon and you know that's that's kind of what's what's that's kind of how he plays in sanjiro it's kind of like it's there's a great scene when when the uh when the 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 nine kids are like running back and forth inside the house and they keep slamming the sliding door yeah and he's just trying (laughs) to sleep but he's just like he's like reacting every time the door slams i think he just says guys can we stop like can we just stop doing this at one point they're like yeah we need to talk more about our strategy he's like no let's just go ahead and get this done so that i can go back to sleep And that's very different than like Yo, because Yojim or in Yojimbo, he's kind of like playing both sides in a way because they want him to be his, bo- they want him to be the bodyguard for each kind of gang. And this is just like I'm just I'm I'm gonna help him because I'm here because these kids are so stupid. <laughs> um, and yeah, everything he they always make a bad decision that kind of like he's just getting tired of it the entire time. Like there's the point where like. I think about an hour in the movie where he's just like, you know what guys I'm leaving and going to the other side. And they're just mm-hmm. like, wait, what? And he's just like, eh, doesn't explain it. He's like, I'm going over there to figure this out. Cause being here just like sucks. Cause you guys don't know what you're doing. I, yeah, I really enjoyed this film. 
Um, and I do think it kind of helps establish those, those genre st- switches and, and also another thing too, is that it's a, it's a sequel that has no connections to the original besides Sanjiro really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of prevalent in like a lot of action movies. Like I say a, a Mad Max, for example, where Mad Max is just going from place to place in every movie. And there's really no connections to oh, like, any a, of the films. like a James Bond, like a James Bond. Exactly. <laughs> where like, it's, it's very big in like the action genre where you have the, uh, the action hero or the, the outlaw or the man with no name coming in from town to town to to give peace to the town and then leaving it's the john ford cowboy of like he arrives in town at the beginning of the movie and he leaves town uh to go on to the next thing once his journey is complete yeah yeah and you know it's it's like i was saying it's really hard to go back you have to go year by year to really track you know yeah. what's what western samurai trope where it started first it's yeah it's, it's yeah. tough to pinpoint it but yeah that that moment where the um the mother of the household is like oh we need to we that he was a good man we need to invite him back he needs to be here he needs to stay with us go get him and bring him back and the the boys go out looking for him and he's like no i'm you know i'm leaving i'm, I'm, I'm gone done. i'm moving yeah. on like that is you know that's what that's shane that's that's literally every western movie it's yeah. like i came in i did my work i'm not meant to stay i, I gotta yeah. move on it's also mary poppins too that's the other thing it is <laughs> is mary poppins is, a samurai is, <laughs> That's a great article to do. I mean, yeah, she comes in, she does her, she does her job, she 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 helps the people learn something, and then she's off again. She can't mm-hmm. stay in one place. Mary's always in the move. She's going <laughs> to different families. Um, so we go from Sanjiro. That's like sixty five. That's sixty two, actually. Yeah, it was literally just a year after Yojimbo. Yeah, Yojimbo, and then also uh, I'll shout out from Rush with Love is the is sixty three that we just talked about on the last episode. We're not going to talk about this movie, but I want to bring it up because I feel this film has a big influence on sequels in the modern day. And that's Godfather Part 2. Because mm. when we look, when I'm looking at the list of stuff I have, it's like you have a few sequels here and there. Like you got Sanjiro 62 from Rush with Love 63. A Shot in the Dark, 64. Return of the, the Seven, which is a Magnificent Seven sequel, 66. Beneath the Planet of the Apes, 70. And then you have Godfather Part Two in 74. And then after that, it's like a free-for-all, where it's French Connection 2, Exorcist 2, Omen 2, Jaws 2, Dawn of the Dead, Rocky 2, more American Graffiti. It just becomes a much bigger market for for sequels and then star wars i think is what opens it up fully after that Mm. um but the one we're going to talk about for this air because like the 70s and 80s was a big sequel boom and the one that we're going to talk about is halloween 2 continuing the idea of what brian frankenstein is doing is it's doing the kind of continuation of the first film again Mm -hmm. also taking place in the same exact night it's like halloween one halloween two some bad times in that town all yeah. in one night. That's a rough night. That's a rough the night. Goes there. And so Halloween 2, for those who know, Halloween 1, Michael Myers, and he's escaped from a sane asylum in his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, and just essentially just starts killing people in Haddonfield, Illinois in the first Halloween. And 
Laurie Strode is uh, this babysitter, and he's essentially like attacking all mostly young women in this town. Yeah, he's 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 just randomly going after Laurie. That's that's what that's what we acknowledge. That's what we acknowledge in the first one, and then <laughs> Halloween Two comes in. This is kind of a trope of sequels: is this idea of exploring the lore and like mm-hmm. expanding upon the world, which you will see from like Pirates of the Caribbean Two or whatever, but. With Halloween too, it's like let's expand on the characters in this movie, and so like the big thing that I so when I I watched Halloween two for the first time like a few years ago, but growing up, even though I never saw any of the Halloweens, I always knew the kind of the twist that Laurie Strode is Michael Myers's sister is the big thing. I'm sorry if you guys didn't know that before you watched Halloween two. I apologize, but like it's it's such a it's a playful because they even bring it up in David Gordon Green's reboot where it's like, oh, I, I thought she was like his sister. Oh, that was just like urban legend or like that was bullshit, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the lore in that the lore in that franchise gets crazy. Way, yeah, it gets <laughs> insane by like the fifth one with there's like Michael Myers devil cults and is Michael yeah. Myers the devil and he has a, a child. And yeah, it's and and it's with this one. Much. Because for a bit, it's like in Halloween series in general has like done a lot of different revamps. So like you have Halloween one and Halloween two, then you have a completely separate story with Halloween three called Season of the Witch. That's completely out of the Michael Myers like storyline. And then you get the Halloween four, Halloween five. And then Jamie Lee Curtis comes back as Laurie Strode in Halloween H2O. And we're like, hey, everything besides Halloween one and two doesn't matter anymore. And we're just going to keep going with this. And then David Gordon Green comes in. Actually, guys, nothing else matters but the original film. So yeah, like, Rob Zombie's up in there at some point. Oh, yeah. I completely forgot about Rob Zombie because that's, like <laughs> that's like a remake. Uh, but yeah, like that continuity is probably the most complex of any of those like horror franchises of like hey uh, friday the 13th got real weird too it did but like i it, it that one like does that like because it had it doesn't have the consistent character of like laurie strode That's where true. like it's like trying to connect them all together like jason can kind of just like go from place to place and like forget about it like yeah. it's just chapter by chapter it's jason x it's jason in space cool I don't need to know anything else. This dude. How can't. did this, oh, this woman, this middle-aged woman murdering kids <laughs> at a camp turn into to a, mo- a space monster? A space monster. He's in like, um, well, I think it's like, it's in the future too. It's like Jason is like been frozen and found in space or something. I'm sorry. I haven't seen all the Jason movies, but I remember that was probably the first Jason movie I saw was Jason X. It was on cable one night. And I was like, You're what like, is happening? Where's what? the summer camp? Where, yeah. When does the summer camp come into play? But but Halloween too. So we watched this actually like a year ago. I I, I got a notification that we saw, or no, two years ago. Yeah. I got a notification that we saw because we saw us together at yeah. the New Art Theater as a midnight. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Halloween too? Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's great. It's it's uh, it's a little more. You know, the the thing about Halloween is it really launched the slasher genre. Yeah, and so. It when you go back and watch it now, it seems a little tame compared yeah. to what came yeah. afterwards. Yeah, I agree. And so Halloween two is when you really feel like it's like okay, this is what we're doing now. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think too, if you if you're really looking for like a good slasher movie, I mean, you got to watch one. It's it's the original. It's it's yeah. great. But like if you if you're just in it to see people get killed in crazy ways, I think you'll enjoy it's two Halloween more two, than yeah. you will one. 
Um, and, and it's essentially just, you know, it's very claustrophobic. It's yeah. just this little hospital on like a night shift. Uh, the, you know, the basic plot is right after the first movie, Lori's taken to the emergency room and Michael follows her there yeah. and is trying to kill her specifically and just kills everyone in this emergency room except for her. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot more, it feels a lot more bare bones than the original. The original was, the original was really trying to, like I said, it's establishing the slasher genre. And so it's trying to explain to you what this concept is because it's a brand new concept it's this person we don't know who he is we don't know why he's doing this but he's killing people yeah and and by the time we made two it's like okay you guys know that part so here we go he's he's killing people again and yeah. uh and yeah you, you can really dive into it a lot stronger my favorite my favorite person in this entire movie though is is my boy Donald pleasance because <laughs> i shot him six times i shot him six times I shot him in the heart. He's like, he gets all the best lines in this movie. <laughs> like another one. What was, uh, uh, it was he, at the beginning of the movie after, uh, he's shot Michael and Michael's like disappeared and he walks outside and the neighbor comes by and he goes, what's going on? I know one other happened and I goes, I've been trick or treated to death. And he just goes, you don't know what death is. And then just <laughs> walks away. And I was like, yes. Yeah, I love Donald this, Pleasant. Two especially, two especially feels like when Doctor Loomis goes. I mean, Doctor Loomis was never a good psychiatrist. <laughs> we just have to throw that out there. He's just like immediately like this guy. This man is a monster. He deserves to be dead. But um, but the second one is when Loomis really turned into like an action hero instead of just instead of being a psychiatrist. He's like, I got my gun. I'm killing this man. Like he's my patient, but I'm putting like, him down. Like the worst part is that he ends up like possibly killing a random like teenager <laughs> at one point when like there's a guy who randomly is kind of in a michael myers mask that's like like that's like bedazzled basically because it's all like like glittery and he's like that's him and he like takes the gun and is like chasing him down the cops are like what are you doing and then a car hits the kids but a little bit spoiler, i apologize but like just like it gets crazy and they're just like i hope that was him yeah. <laughs> and then you find out it was not him and you're yeah, like, oh. yeah. And then when Jamie Curtis leaves, Donald Pleasance is kind of the like, you know, Loomis is the recurring character and he just gets crazier and crazier. He's like, yeah, I know I'm a psychiatrist, but this man is the devil. But yeah, the entire, I love the entire movie. He's just like, I shot him six times. I think there's one <laughs> random part where he goes, I shot him six times, maybe seven. Like, he doesn't <laughs> Damn you. Sorry. What have you done? I haven't done anything. You let him out. I didn't let him out. I, I gave orders for him to be restrained. Now, is there anything else that we can do for you? If that wasn't Michael Myers burning up in that car, then a lot of other kids are going to be slaughtered tonight. He's dead. I saw him. I saw a man in a mask. It was him. I want to believe you, but I got to be sure. I can't stop until I'm certain that he's dead. You're talking about him like he's some kind of animal. It was my... Would you keep him back? He was my patient for 15 years. It became an obsession with me until I realized that there was nothing within him, neither conscience nor reason, that wasn't even remotely human. An hour ago, I stood up and, and fired six shots into him. He just got up and walked away. I am talking about the real possibility that he is still out there. So it's a huge boom of sequels. And what you start seeing weirdly uh, around this time is you start seeing like, auteur driven sequels 
and like directors who weren't involved with the first one coming in and doing the new adaptation, the new sequel to it. Uh, Aliens was was with uh, James Cameron. Beverly Hills Cop Two was with Tony Scott. Uh, Nash Lampoon's European Vacation was Amy Heckerling. And then the one we're going to talk about with this kind of period is The Color of Money, directed by Martin Scorsese. And I believe he took this movie to make to get money to make Last Temptation of Christ, is what it was. Mm. Um, and The Color of Money is probably the, the least talked about movie we'll talk about or discuss in this, in this episode, is a sequel to The Hustler from 1959, I believe. And The Hustler was about... This character, Fast Eddie Felson, played by Paul Newman, who's just a pool hustler. He's going from town to town, club to club, hustling people at pool. At the end of The Hustler, some stuff happens where he basically has to promise, like, I'm never going to hustle again. I'm never going to play pool again. And at the beginning of Color of Money, it's like, it's now 25 years later, which is also kind of the first one I think that really does this, where, like, it's taking a movie from decades ago and giving it a new chapter, which has kind of become prominent in like today's market of let's do uh wall street two, or let's do uh blade around 2049. Let's take a story from 30 years ago and give it us, give us a new one. And in color of money, fast Eddie is like owns a club. Now he's not or owns a bar. He's not doing any hustling, but he spots this young kid Vince, played by Tom Cruise, probably at the peak of his like 80s powers. Same year as Top Gun. So like Tom Cruise is ultra Tom Cruise in the 80s. And he, Fast Eddie, Paul Newman, sees that Tom Cruise is this hustler as well. And Tom Cruise is paired with his girlfriend, uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastria. On a Tony, I apologize for butchering that name. <laughs> um, but they're like, they're these two hustlers from Go Place Place. And Paul Newman's like, hey guys, let me teach you how to really hustle. And this is another aspect of, especially some of these like movies that are coming place decades later, is this idea of the previous main character becoming a mentor to a young character. Mm-hmm. And it's what a lot of like, say, Indiana Jones came with a crystal skull for those that believe it exists does with Shia LaBeouf as mud or even to an extent force awakens where Han Solo becomes kind of a mentor to Ray. Like it's very apparent or it's very prominent in a lot of these like decades long movies or decades long gaps between reverse card. You know, if you take this, the prequels, you know, Obi-Wan becoming the mentor to Luke. Yeah. Yeah. You just got to work it back. That's, you know, that's it flipped. But that's kind of the thing is like it's it's like taking a main character from a previous film they become a mentor to this younger character who's like doesn't know as much as they do well and that that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is you know one of your one of your challenges when writing a sequel is you've got to teach for usually you have to teach the same character the same lesson again yeah and and something like sanjuro that's more of an action movie like that's not that important like learning a lesson is not as important in an action movie because you have your outside conflict that's like you you don't have to necessarily overcome internal conflict because you're fighting somebody physically yeah but yeah and something like this where you have to teach you know you're like hey we did the hustler we taught this young hotshot you know a little bit of humility and a little bit of you know you got to use your brain you can't you know go completely off of your instincts all the time um yeah and so a way to do that 
and essentially just kind of teach the same lessons over again is to now have that person that learned that lesson be the one teaching yeah. and bring in somebody entirely fresh and new that hasn't learned that yet. And then you can just kind of teach the same lesson. Yeah. And I, I think this is such a, this is a weird, this is an outlier in Scorsese's filmography. This was during his, his, his lost years. Well, right? yeah, this, this, yeah, this is this lost years of like after hours and a lot of stuff. I think he, again, I said he took his movie because he was trying to make last temptation of Christ and this is kind of like a studio movie that kind of would give him a little bit of money or whatever. And I gotta be real. There's a scene in this movie. I don't think we can play it because it's a lot of music and not much talking. Uh, there's a scene in this movie. I is, it, wa- is it Eric Clapton? No. Is it the Eric Clapton song? Play? It's in the way that you use it. <laughs> no, it's a Werewolves of London sequence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, yeah. when it's a one sh- it's a one shot and it's circling Tom Cruise as he's running the table. And... I watch this scene probably once every month at least on YouTube. See, I watch the I watch the pool hall scene from Mean Streets probably once a month. <laughs> I love that scene. This guy's calling me a mook. What's a mook? You can't call me a mook. Um, but uh, yeah, you know that's uh, Scorsese and pool it, hall it was, it was scenes. Yeah, it was definitely a fit for him. Pool. Yeah, he, he had covered pool halls before. But it's like, man, it's it's circling, and Tom Cruise is doing a little dance and like doing karate moves with his with his uh with his pull cue, and Werewolves of London is just blaring. And kind of why I watched this the big scene where like Paul Newman as Fast Eddie, they've gone to this town to basically hustle the town for days, and he's like, hey, you start with this guy, don't start for the big the big dog first. Like don't for the don't go for the guy who's the best person in the pool hall because then every other person in here is gonna like go cold and not want to play you. He's mm-hmm. like so you start with the like the kind of like the guys who are just playing for fun, play on the side, put a little money down, make a couple bucks. He goes then you start building and we can run this place for days. But Vince Tom Cruise's character is so hell bent on proving he's the best, and Paul Newman's kind of like saying it's not about being the best, it's about being the smartest, and. Vince is just like, I can't take it. I'm going to go to the pool hall and just like rack up on this, this, uh, the best guy in, in this, in the, in the town to show everyone how I'm the best guy around. Well, then now all those 20 people they're playing on running and get money from hustling now will not play him. Cause they just saw how he played and beat this dude, like just insanely. But yeah, like it, this kind of brings up the whole decades long, uh, break between, a, a, a original and a sequel and how to kind of continue that character. Like, where is this character now? That's a big question that everyone's going to ask with films that are taking place decades later. So it's even happened with a uh, recent with Bill and Ted three face the music where it's like, okay, where are Bill and Ted right now? And with Scorsese's color money, I think it's one of the first ones that I know of that goes, okay, where is fast Eddie 20 years later? Mm-hmm. Where would he be? And that's a big question a lot of people should ask when they're making a sequel if they want it to be good. It's yep. like, where is this character at? Mental state, physically maybe. Where are they at in their lives? Is it worth telling? I got half of me that says I got a hold of the best thing that I ever seen and half of me that says it just ain't worth it. I mean, either I don't teach you right or you don't listen. Or you listen, but you don't hear. What was that voodoo stuff? That wasn't pool. That was a circus. You dropped your pants. You want to get known? Good. You and Gypsy Rose Lee. I can always go back to whiskey. It's been very good to me. I mean, you're sitting in it and I'm wearing it. 
It's tired. You know, it's just kind of run off. All of a sudden, you appear in a scene. I'm jumping again. You remind me that that money won is twice as sweet as money earned. Twenty-five years ago, I had the screws put on me. I mean, it was over for me before it really got started. But I'm hungry again, and you bled that back into me. You got to have two things to win. You got to have brains, and you got to have balls. And you got too much of one and not enough of the other. So we move on from Color Money, and we're going to talk more about action sequels, which is very prominent in the 80s with, say, Rambo. Yeah, yeah. Talk about sequels that completely missed the point. Oh, yeah. So, Ram- yeah, Rambo 2 and 3, uh, Lethal Weapon 2. The one we're going to talk about is Die Hard 2. Because there's one big part, one big thing that it does that I want to discuss is very, again, very, uh, is usually a used trope in sequels. And that's kind of this idea of, like, some people say sequels go far and or see, but I, I kind of see it as like same character, kind of the same story, different location. And Die mm-hmm. Hard 2, Die Hard 1 is about John McClane being stuck in Nakatomi Tower and saving everyone from Alan Rickman and these terrorists. Die Hard 2 is John McClane in an airport in Washington, D.C. at Christmas, same place, like two years later after Die Hard 1. And he's waiting for his wife to get off the airplane uh, so they can go like see her parents and and spend Christmas Eve with the parents, with the family. And what happens, just so it happens to John McClane, is that there are terrorists at this airport and they're trying to rescue this drug lord who's being brought over to the U.S. to go on trial. And John McClane is like, I'm, at one point he literally says, another elevator, another basement. How can the same thing happen to the same guy twice? Like, it's very much just like, let's take the same story from Die Hard 1, put it in kind of a new surrounding and a a, a few new things, but like, it's very much like referencing the previous film. Yeah, this is exactly the type of movie that 22 Jump Street is talking about. Exactly, where it's like, let's put you in, is it college? Is that what it is? We're going to college. You guys are going to college. Do the exact same thing you did last time, but yeah. but it's gonna be at college now. But it's like you'll see it where it's like Spider Man, Spider Man Far From Home, or Home Alone Two: Lost in New York, uh, a very Brady sequel where they're like at Ho- in Hawaii or something. Like it's very much like let's take you and put you in a different location, but expect the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the it's I would say kind of the easiest thing to do if that makes sense in terms of like writing a sequel yeah yeah i mean i i mean i mean honestly we just spent you know last week talking about james bond you know it that's that's where yeah. it works an action movie if you and you know we just did mission impossible as well you know an action movie is the franchise where that will work comedies have tried it and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't you mentioned european vacation earlier which which it, it works in but it doesn't always work. Um, I mean, ha- Hangover Part Two is an example where, like, yeah. it's like Hangover, but in Thailand. Yeah, and then Three was like, okay, well, we'll just go back to Vegas, and then it it was even worse. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, action movies. You know, if you can, if it's all about the set pieces, yeah, and it's all about you know the visuals, and so if you can deliver that, people will generally be pretty forgiving about you know not not really changing much. P- you know, we liked watching John McClane 
stuck in a trapped in this building with uh with bad guys let's do it again and um and you know it, it this one is such an interesting franchise because after after the second one they kind of got the memo of like oh hey we need to change stuff again yeah and and so the third one is is a little different i i actually like die hard with a vengeance better than than die hard 2 oh no, die hard 3 is better than die hard 2 yeah hands okay, down cool, yeah cool, and cool. i agree with you but yeah it's it's different you know he's got a friend now you've got this like buddy cop thing going on um it's out in the open he's got to run around new york city um and and that worked but then they also kind of took it a little too far with the next two movies and they were like and now it's just like this is not john mcclain at all like yeah he just jumped a motorcycle onto a, on a onto a jet plane wing like this is yeah. not die hard so you know it there's a very thin line especially in in action movies that it's like you gotta up the stakes but you also have to remember what it is we liked about the first one with like four i haven't seen five i haven't seen good at die hard but like with and i i'm enjoying four i have not revisited since theaters but it's like how can this like just nypd officer is just somehow involved in all these like terrorist things like yeah. how is that possible and not how is he and, involved in this cyber terrorism yeah right now? exactly like makes, there's no reason that this man should be involved with this yeah like i get die hard three because it's very much like hey there is a it's it's also more of a revenge story as well yeah um but it's also like hey we're gonna we're gonna blow up these things in the city and you're the guy i'm coming after john mcclain so that makes sense but like four is like oh we're doing a we're doing a fire sale we're gonna like just change the entire like government like security systems and money and all that stuff and then five i think they're in russia i think is what it is like yeah and it, his son is in like the cia or something and he gets roped into it's going just off with it's his too son. too much it's like what and i that's why i still do like two it's still a very like hey it's a contained story he's stuck in an airport like it's very much just the same exact as one and three as you're saying it does kind of change it up a little bit where it's like oh cool we're finally going to see this nypd officer in new york for the first time because the first one's in la second one's in the airport in dc and now we're like cool this is more of like a on the run type cop movie with die hard with a vengeance and the other thing with die hards as well uh is that all of them i think except the first one because that was based on a i don't know if it was a john if it was john mcclain as the character but like two or three and i think four are all based on like other stories and they've just inserted john mcclain into it so Die Hard 2, weirdly, I didn't know this, was supposed to be, it was it was based on a book. Was it this or, Die, no, it was Die Hard 3. I think Die Hard 3 was supposed to be a Lethal Weapon sequel, is what it was. But Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 3 were both like other stories or other screenplays or other books, and they inserted John McClane into them. And I think Die Hard 3, one of the scripts was uh, fighting terrorists on a Caribbean cruise line. Bruce Willis said no. That became Speed 2, that scre huh. that screenplay. They're going to do this movie called Simon Says with Brandon Lee as the lead character. And then Warner Brothers bought it and rewrote it as a Lethal Weapon sequel. And then it was put in a turnaround. And then Fo Fox bought it and made it a Die Hard film. So it's weird to see how like all these different... like It's also just the action franchise at that point where like they're all like trying to do the same thing but be a little bit different mm -hmm. um but yeah die hard 2 i do i do think establishes that established but it uses the trope of 
same story, new location. Like, oh, Sp- or Spider-Man Far From Home. Oh, you want to see Spider-Man in, in Europe? Or you want to see James Bond on the Golden Gate Bridge? Like, that's a big thing. And it's, I said, I think it's one of the easier ways to do it. With the with those type movies, you're mainly you're wanting to see the character. Esperanza's is down, but he's hurt. He took a round in his shoulder. Guess I got one more there, guys. That six they lost all together. Well, maybe if we knew how many they had to start with, we could get excited. But if they got fifty guys, it's a little early to break out the champagne. Now we appreciate your effort, McLean, but we don't need a loose cannon on this deck. What if they decide to crash another plane in retaliation for your little stunt, they huh? can't do that anymore, right, Barnes? Besides, if I grabbed Esperanza, this would all be over by now. Well, maybe they're just a little bit more creative than you think. Well, at least I'm thinking, goddammit! Listen, you wise ass. We're here to jerk off that cocksucker until he tries to take off. Period! Now, you're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. We're now entering into the 2000s where superheroes are now running the world or beginning to run the world <laughs> with Spider-Man 2, which was re- the first Spider-Man 2, which was released in 2004. Um, so Thomas, what is Spider-Man 2 about? Uh, I, I would know this because I saw it twice in theaters. Uh, <laughs> uh, Spider-Man 2 is a continuation of the Tobey Maguire, um, Sam Raimi Spider-Man franchise. Uh, in which, you know, the first one was set, Spider-Man was in high school, he was learning his powers, and the second one is he's in college now, he's moved to the big city, Mary Jane, his former next-door neighbor slash crush, has also moved to the big city, she's in, um, trying to make it on Broadway, Yeah, and, you know, they're, they're all growing up, uh, and he's still Spider-Man, he's got his powers down pat, he's yeah. doing it on the side, and so this one, whereas the last one was about kind of coping with his new powers and self-confidence yeah. uh spider-man 2 is about trying to uh balance life and spider-man so you know when we're talking about tropes this is one that manages to give us new lessons um you know the first one was all about great power great responsibility and the second one is like okay i've got all this responsibility but can i be a person outside of that like can i can i have a life um and then you've also got alfred molina as dr octopus who's kind of your big villain um once again a very sympathetic villain i think the first two sam raimi uh spider-man movies laid a very great groundwork for you know a lot of the marvel heroes that work are the ones that you're like oh i understand where they're coming from And, and you know with with alfred molina he's 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 you know they, they tell you his his brain has been corrupted by these computers inside of him but you also like you you like him as a person before he turns bad and you get exactly you get you you understand what he's feeling and what he's trying to do yeah. but yeah i think it it's it's one of those that just works insanely well you know we talk a lot when you're talking about superhero films these days like do we need an origin story and you know the last this the latest version of spider-man completely skipped that we never yeah. even saw the the spider bite or anything. And so, yeah, I think in these types of movies, you have a lot more room to explore more interesting themes once you've gotten that, like, oh, yeah. I have superpowers out of the way. There's so many movies now that are like, wow, I have superpowers. It's like, okay, cool. Move on. Get on to, like, what that means for your character. And, yeah. and this, I think this is the first one to really nail, like, 
okay, I've got the superpowers. I've figured this whole superhero thing out. Now I need to figure out how to be a person. And the the Iron Man franchise really leaned into that as yeah. it came along. That was kind of what his personal arc was all about. A lot of the movies have kind of gone into that now, and I think Spider Man Two laid the groundwork for that. I won't I won't go that far because here's what I, <laughs> here's what I'll say because I do it does it very well, but I think Superman Two is the one that lays the groundwork. Oh, okay, for that. all right. I, just, I don't know the Superman movies. I I'm not a Superman fan. That's and... fine. But Superman Two establishes like. Clark is now like, I'm a superhero, but like, I want to be with Lois. And he makes the decision, I'm giving up my powers to be a regular human being. And I do know Raimi has said that Superman 2 was a big influence on that yeah. when they were tackling with Spider-Man 2. Sorry. I'll give you that. But I'm talking, I'm talking, we're talking modern era here, man. I think, um, yes, I mean, I the, Spider the Spider-Man franchise, the X-Men franchise and the Spider-Man franchise in the early 2000s are the yeah. reason that, you know, everybody points to the first iron man because it's obviously the first mcu film but i don't think those that movie like nobody goes to see iron man if you don't have the success of the spider-man and the x-men movies. I, I agree with you on that i'm not gonna disagree um it but no i do i think with two we're talking about kind of the sequel has to raise the stakes usually the traditional way is like you know what we should do we should add more villains that will raise the stakes, which is what they did in Spider-Man 3, and look what happened. But yeah. what Spider-Man 2 does, which is what makes it more unique and, and better, is that the stakes are the personal stakes. Are yeah. like It's actually, a, a when watching it, it's a really well-structured film because mm -hmm. at the right moments of when stuff's about to happen, it's like, the, I think the 15-minute mark, I wrote it down, it's like the 15-minute mark, it's the whole, you're establishing that like, oh, he... Or no, twenty at the right at the thirty minute mark is when he loses powers, and that's mm -hmm. like kind of the whole thing. I mean, you can go like debate comic book stuff of how like there's some things in here that are not really comic book esque, uh, and it's Sam Raimi just being Sam Raimi, but like he loses his powers at thirty minutes in because he's so stressed about like he wants to be with Mary Jane, but she like doesn't understand that he's spider-man so he's doing this he's being like the first 15 minutes him just being pulled every which way from missing class getting fired from his job um uh missing mary jane's play like all this stuff's happening and he just like i can't be him he's behind on rent like he can't be a student uh, a friend uh a nephew or a superhero all like in one he just can't do it yeah i think i think when we're when we're talking about you know, whether or not to repeat the same themes or to complicate them. I think this is one of those great complications in that one of the big things pushing Pete in the first movie is if I'm Spider-Man, I, I have a shot to make Mary Jane fall in love with me. Yeah, I can impress her. Uh, Peter is not making her fall. She's not falling in love with Peter. Yeah. Maybe she'll fall in love with Spider-Man. And then this one is she is falling in love with Peter. Like that's, that's, that's something that I can do now, but I'm Spider-Man and that's stopping me from doing it. And yeah, I think it's, it, it's a really, really smart escalation of personal issues yeah. instead of escalation of the outside, the, the external conflict, which a lot of the like action films are talking about in these, that's what they, that's what they lean into. We talked about this too, a little bit with Mission Impossible with that Ethan can't be with someone because he what he's doing will harm 
them in some way. Like people will come after them. And that's what Peter is like, why he doesn't want to be with me or why he can't be with Mary Jane's. Cause he feels that like, if he's Spider-Man, she is in harm's way. She mm-hmm. can be taken. She could be taken from it by a villain or she can be, she can be hurt in some way because he has a connection. So Peter believes he has to basically just like in order to be Spider-Man, be the real Spider-Man. He has to cut everyone out of his life basically. And they're all kind of telling him, well, you don't really have to do that. And so it's either choose to be Spider-Man or choose to have a life. And as we're saying, he can't find that balance. Another one that does it really well, I think is probably, probably Nolan's Batman specifically with the dark Knight and mm-hmm. Batman begins in a way. Cause the dark Knight is all about how bat or uh, uh, Bruce wants to be with Rachel but like he can't have her because he's Batman. She kind of says the end of Batman begins like one day when you're not Batman, there might be a place for us. And so he's constantly thinking that in his head. Okay, let me get, let me do so well. Let me put Harvey Dent in so I can like stop being Batman. He can protect the city, and I'll be like in love with Rachel, and we'll go live off in like Morocco or someplace. I don't know. Uh, but I do believe Spider-Man Two lays the groundwork for that modern superhero film to tackle those issues but give credit to superman too that's all i gotta say and shout out dashboard confessional for giving us the song vindicated (laughs) spider-man 2 soundtrack is the best just pop punk time capsule for like two mid 2000s it's incredible it was funny when the credits hit i was like oh i forgot this music existed yeah like it's very (laughs) yellow card like like this time period of music and they just leaned into it for that one (laughs) Well, it's after, very emo. Uh, Spider-Man's got a lot of feelings in that movie. It's not <laughs> it's not emo Spider-Man from the third movie, which is dumb. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's real. It's real actual emotion Spider-Man, not not it, black suit dancing in the street Spider-Man. I kind of rewatched Spider-Man three because like there is a point in Spider-Man two that has a very Spider-Man three like walking down the street moment, but it's done when he's like not Spider-Man anymore. The and he's drops like, keep falling on my head part. That's that sequence yeah. and like he trips and falls, and I was like. I wonder if it's the same like beats, like the same spot in the story when he's like sliding down the street and like his like whatever song he's listening to and like I, that that scene has become so infamous around that movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's more people have watched that scene in the past ten years than they've watched the film again. Like that's the oh thing. absolutely. I mean they 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 do it in um in Spider Verse. Inspire yeah they do but like yeah so Spider Man two does a lot of right things by raising the personal stakes and all that and then the the easier way the superhero film that's hard to pull off is the let's add more villains thing and that's what spider-man 3 does which is kind of kind of one of its downfalls it's not Mm -hmm. saying the downfall but one of its downfalls Uh, but yeah spider-man 2 i i it's also re-watching it this time realizing how big of a voice sam raimi has in this film Mm mm-hmm like, but when I saw him originally back in the 2000s, like I wasn't aware of like Evil Dead or Dark Man or The Quick and the Dead and films like that. But watching it now, specifically when like it's the Doc Ock hospital scene when he's oh, like killing yeah. everyone, it's so like hor- schlocky horror film like direction. And I say that in the nicest way possible. That seems fantastic, but yeah, yeah it's, it's it great. comes out of nowhere, and you're like, yeah. oh yeah, I forgot this guy's a horror director. Yeah, like it's it's not it's not like an insult to him. Like it's I like it. It's just so like oh yeah, Sam Raimi's doing this movie mm-hmm. is what it is. So yeah, anything else to say about Spider Man Two before we Fantastic. move on? One of the 
best superhero movies of all time. One of the best sequels of all time. I, I enjoyed it a lot more, like, because I hadn't seen it since maybe, like, early college. And it's we it sometimes gets a lot of hate. What? Um, Who's I, hating I have, on Spider-Man 2? I have some friends. Point me in so, their direction. <laughs> Alfred Molina? Come on, man. I mean, I mean, Willem Dafoe is incredible in the first one. But Alfred Molina is so good in this. He has some gravita- gravitas in this movie. Like when he's like doing the scene when they're just like at his place, like having dinner or whatever mm-hmm. that like, I'm like, yeah, this dude's really good in this. Uh, let me tell oh, real quick. I'll tell you who they were up. Who was looking, they were looking at for this move for, for Doc. Oh, I thought you were about to say, I'll tell you who doesn't like this movie. I was like, let's go. Let's, let's call him out. <laughs> uh, for Doc Ock, they were looking at Sam Neill. Okay. That, Robert, De- you know. Robert De Niro. Eh. And mm-hmm. Ed Harris. I like, I, I like I, Alfred Molina. I, I, I think Alfred Molina is the better part of it. Yeah. Uh, also, too, there was talks that, uh, and this has I think been talked about, um, that Jake Gyllenhaal was going to play Spider-Man in this movie. Oh yeah, the the Toby wasn't going to come back. Yeah, Toby wasn't going to come back because apparently while filming Sea Biscuit, he suffered injuries to his back. Yeah. And Sony was like, we have to recast, and negotiations started with Jake Gyllenhaal to replace McGuire. Oh, and then years years later, I think that's when I heard about it. Was like when he was doing the he press ta- tour. Yeah, for he talked about it with Far, Far from, from Home. home yeah. yeah, yeah, he was like, yeah, I was. They're like, well, you're going to be at one point. He goes, yeah, there was talks. <laughs> I, I said I enjoyed it more the, the this time. I'm now kind of want to go revisit even the first Spider Man and maybe even Spider Man Three. We'll see. You were so wonderful. That was such a great play. You could have told me you were coming. I was afraid you'd say don't come. You look different. I shine my shoes, press my pants, did my homework. I do my homework now. You want to get some chow mein? Peter, I'm getting married. I always imagine you getting married on a hilltop. And who's the groom? You hadn't decided yet. You think just because you saw my play, you can talk me out of getting married? You once told me you loved me. I let things get in the way before. There was something I thought I had to do. I don't have to. You're too late. Will you think about it? Think about what? Picking up where we left off. Where was that? We never got on. You can't get off if you don't get on, Peter. I don't think it's that simple. Of course you don't, because you complicate things. You don't understand. I'm not an empty seat anymore. I'm different. Punch me, I bleed. So moving on from superheroes and Spider-Man and all that stuff, and we'll see how this one's going to go, but let's talk about Ocean's 12. Yeah, so, you know, earlier in the earlier in the podcast, I, I mentioned the idea of, like, the studio says they're up for it, and... There's just it feels like there's not clear communication of like what's going to happen, which I, 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 you know, it's funny. I went through a period of I, I didn't realize until I rewatched it last week, like how much I watched this movie when I was a kid, um, because I love the first Ocean's Eleven and we didn't have it on VHS, but I okay. had Ocean's Twelve on VHS and okay. I did not realize until I started watching it. And I knew it beat for beat and almost line for line. I was like, oh, man, I watched this movie a lot. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I went through a period, you know, I loved it as a kid. Then I started hearing that like people didn't like it. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, it's not, it's not as, as like, it doesn't feel like Ocean's Eleven. And then I went through a period of like not liking it. And then I, I, I had somebody pitch it to me again a few years back as like, they're like, yeah, it's not meant to be Ocean's Eleven over again. It's a European comedy. I, I and I was, was like, didn't I say that to you or did someone else say it to you? I, I know specifically. I've said to you, I know. I know specifically who said it to me, but you, you also have brought that up. But um, this, <laughs> this, was a, this was a film professor. Um, okay. But yeah, so when you go back and revisit, you're like, yeah, Steven Soderbergh did not make another heist. This is not a heist movie, no, period. No, this, this, is, this is a con movie. Yeah, it's, this is it's a, a con, con movie, movie, but it's really just like a road comedy. It's it's a You, you fully recognize that the, the, the studio came at this going, that movie was a huge success. We've got all these guys in a contract. Let's go again. And Soderbergh is like, you know what? I, I think the energy that's coming off of this is Soderbergh was just like, what we really established that last movie was that these guys all have great comedic rapport with each other. Every single person yeah. from Clooney yeah. down to Scott, uh, or, uh, Scott, Scott Con. Yeah. And so it's like, let's just make an out and out comedy and let's go. And, well, it, yeah, it's, and you yeah. know, it's another one of those things that like a lot of meta stuff from the early 2000s didn't get a lot of love because we just weren't ready to wrap our heads around it. And I've, I've, I've come back and like defended several things now that I'm like, yeah, it was just super metal and you need to go back and check it out. And I think this, this is especially one of those things that was like crazy meta and nobody yeah. knew what to do with it. And people still don't know what to do with it is the other thing. There's certainly who just don't get it still. Mm -hmm. Like the whole Julia Roberts bit of like, you're playing Julia Roberts. Like that's what, that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, so Ocean's 12, for those who don't know, Danny Ocean and Tess, his now, his, his now remarried wife, they never divorced, actually, I don't think. Um, they're living under new identity, uh, uh, retired life off the money they stole from Terry Benedict at the, uh, at the, uh, uh, the Benedict job or whatever it was called. Later became Ocean's 11. I didn't know we agreed to be a corporation. <laughs> We always we always call it the, the the like the Bellagio heist or whatever it is, um, and all of a sudden Terry Bennett, the guy they robbed from, shows up and he's like, "I want my money, like I want everything plus interest." Which there's a whole thing online about this of like, see Terry Benedict as like a studio exec coming to a film director, hey, you put the group together make it just like the first one but better well in the first one i take the last time i went back and rewatched the first one i texted you and i was like this is a this is about making movies like yeah it is you've got no, it danny's is. the director rusty's the producer yeah um, they're putting a team uh, together yeah uh, uh linus is the like fresh young talent that is unsure yeah. of themselves and and this still does that where it's like terry is the studios like hey we want the same thing but more money mm -hmm. like that's all it is like hey put them together don't care how and it's like, well, we can't do anything here. We have to go abroad. So it's like it's taking the the trope of new character or same characters, new location. So we're going to Europe. That's a big tr sequel trope that, tr that that Soderbergh is highly aware of. They've raised the stakes because they have to make more money. Like that's the whole scene where they're counting up all the money. Oh, that interest really gets you. Like it's like <laughs> oh, I'm like fifteen million, man. Um, and then and then you have the genre switch. You have the from heist film to like European con road comedy type thing. Like that's the thing that everyone misunderstands with oceans 12 is that it is a con movie and a con movie 
you're always watching from the perspective of the person being conned. And in that movie, it's Vincent Cazale's character that we're kind of, we're seeing his point of view the entire, for majority of the movie. And then we get spun around at the end. And that's what kind of confuses people of like, what do you mean that happened the entire time? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. It's a, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult jump for people to make. But it makes sense in a con movie. But it doesn't make sense in an Ocean's Eleven heist film. That's that's and the the brilliance, the absolute brilliance of this movie is you kind of put Clooney back a little bit. Which, from yeah. what I understand, Clooney was just like, "Yeah, I'm on vacation" because they shot at Lake Como, and he was just <laughs> like, "Yeah, you guys come shoot where my home, where my vacation home is. I'll show up yeah. when you need me." But then it puts him to the side and makes Brad Pitt's Rusty Ryan the main character, which is the best move anyone could ever make he is so brad pitt is an incredible comedic actor like one of you know the 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 saying that everyone in hollywood always says is he is a character actor who's been cursed with a leading man's face yeah and, and i don't Very think much it's so. ever been more on display than it is in this particular movie man he's so good yeah it's it's there's one oh, there's yeah. one shot where they're all talking about and it's an, and Matt Damon's incredible in this scene too but they're talking about their first heist and it's when Matt Damon has the whole like I'm not I'm not comfortable with using the nomenclature of the freak for this person. <laughs> I love that he like flips yeah, his line good. and they just keep going like he can't remember how to pronounce uh, uh agoraphobic no. and someone else has to correct him and they just leave it. <laughs> it feels like sometimes in these movies specifically I mean, even this one even oceans 13 to an extent they just he just puts the camera up and they're just like hey just go just but say whatever there's this there's this one shot and somebody says something dumb and they just hold on brad pitt and he has this moment where he like looks at him and he's like no and then he turns to look back and starts to say something and he takes a beat and like looks back <laughs> like why would you even say that kind of thing and i like reround it like three times i called my girlfriend into the room i was like you have to watch this he is every move he makes is so weird but like perfectly <laughs> thought out it to to have him off with brad pitt too but like to have a movie with this large of a cast that the chemistry is just so damn good mm -hmm. that's yeah, a hard yeah, feat the, that is a hard feat to do this no movie realizes. just brings in kind of out of nowhere this like friendship between it's like oh yeah by the way um rusty brad pitt's character and bernie mac's character bernie mac. were like their their friendship goes back further than like anybody else's and you're like that yeah. was not brought up in the first movie <laughs> at all but they're great together and i, I did yeah. it yeah let's go yeah. let's do it but it makes sense of like yeah we've worked together a lot over the years like all of us have been traded back and forth and now we're all of a sudden together um what was there was one thing i wanted to say Catherine Zeta jones is great in this they've She's got incredible great. chemistry they do um yeah it's 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 just it's a, a lot of fun but yeah if you're expecting to come in watching this like heist go down it's not gonna happen oh yeah the other bit the meta-ness to it because there is like a lot of meta-ness to this the one thing that i heard was that matt damon didn't want to do it mm -hmm. he's like i only want to do it if you can expand on my role and so the whole bit in the movie is linus like hey i want to be a bigger part yeah. of this and they're just like which I then know, becomes linus, like, I, I gotta i gotta give it up to the third one the third one is is fine um but yeah, the, it, it, there's this really interesting trifecta where the first one is about Danny, the second one's about Rusty, and the third one's about Linus. And yeah. it's, it's really interesting the way they, they kind of divide it up. Well, weirdly, throughout the series, I mean, we I, I realize we should have just done a whole Ocean's like uh, 11 through 13 episode. We'll do it one day in the future. <laughs> but like the whole, journey, the whole journey of the trilogy is Linus. Yeah. You're seeing Linus in the 
the first the first movie is the young like young kid who's like a pickpocket in Chicago and then he gets part he's a fi- he like he thinks he's going to be the final like the the main guy in the heist and they realize oh no Danny's going to be doing it but Danny wanted you to be with him doing it so Danny's like taking him along Ocean's mm-hmm. 12 is I want to be bigger in this I want to be a bigger bigger part of the heist and then Linus is kind of running a lot of the stuff at the end, because that's the whole bit. They're all in prison, and they're just like, "How much you want to bet they don't get to the door or what?" Like they're mm-hmm. like in Li- Linus. It's Linus and Scott Con and Don Cheeler, the ones that are do- the three that are doing it. But it's Linus is the guy. He's the guy who's who's heading up Julia Roberts, like intro- talking with Bruce Willis and all that. He's the one controlling the scene. And then the third one is like, as you're saying, it's m- mostly Linus's movie, mm-hmm. and it ends with all three of them at the. Uh, at the airport and he's like, I gotta go off and do a thing. And now he's like on the same level mm-hmm. as Rusty and Danny. Sorry. I apologize. guys go watch all of the oceans movies. But yeah. This one. Th- yeah. This one is very obviously, I mean, even just from the pacing of it, it, it has yeah. this kind of like slow dream, like European pacing. Like this, is it does. Yeah. So obviously something. And you know, like it, it's been, it's been said, yeah, they just made this because Clooney wanted to stay at his lake house, but whether or not it was Soderbergh's idea to be in Europe, he leans yeah. into it a hundred percent. He does. And there's that amazing moment where they're sitting there on the couch drunk and, and Brad Pitt is spilling his soul out to, to Clooney. And then Dan, and then it just gets quiet. And then Danny's like, that guy doing Potsy is amazing. It's, like, <laughs> it's so it's, deadpan. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. It's so different from the first one, completely different type of humor, I, but the same characters and the same actors and the same chemistry. And I think that's what makes it really interesting and just kind of wild that it happened as a studio sequel in general. Now you told me that your wife said that he called it Ocean Eleven. Now who decided that? I'm a private contract. It was a collaboration that moniker is insulting. Yeah, I mean, Danny, it was one job that we did together. So I don't know where this whole like proprietary stance comes from. Wait, it seems a little possessive. One could know? make the argument that because it was in fact Danny's idea, maybe No, it hang be- on a minute. We all had our own areas of expertise. I mean, without us, it don't leave your head, mate. It just hurts, you know, because it seemed like we all agreed to call it the Benedict job. I mean, that's what we called it when we were doing it. You know? right. <laughs> if you wanted to call it something else all along, then... Wait, when you have a problem, who do you go to? Rusty. Thanks, Linus. Let's get back on the topic. Based on what we stole, plus interest, how much does everybody owe? $17.34 million. Assuming Benedict gives us prime plus one, which I doubt, figure 19 to be safe. Okay, 19 each. Anybody got that? What, you think the stock market's some great mystery beyond the realm of human understanding? Didn't you see the signs? I saw the signs. How much is everybody short? How much are you short? Uh, 14, 14. You spent all but five million? Yeah, I did. You gonna start with me in front of everybody? You don't know what it's like to create something from scratch, so just, you know? Well, with interest, I'm short seven. Eight. Uh, I spent about a million, uh, mostly on talent development, so that makes it seven for me. Boy, the interest just kills you. I'm not nine. What's the uh, interest? About six. Then I owe six. What? I've been staying at my parents. I owe 25. Hotels, man. But it is a film 
that takes a lot of the stuff we're talking about and just like subverts it enough where like it knows everything a sequel does and it's like cool how can we twist it a little bit if it's a genre switch if it's a new location if it's raising the stakes if it's meta it's everything's in there well i mean and even the old like you said the ultimate lesson of the movie is like nothing you were watching was what you thought it was this whole movie and is that not a comment on the entire movie like you came here thinking this was a sequel to oceans 11 and it's not (laughs) it's not exactly it's a whole new thing with the same people but yeah moving on we've talked about this we you've hinted at it i assume i assume you're talking about this movie of like movies that are made that the people who are behind it really want to do it but the studio doesn't know what to do with the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And that is T2 train spotting. So it's train spotting two. Yeah. And this, this is something where Danny Boyle had been talking about this forever. Yeah. And there, there is a novel sequel yeah. to the first train spotting. And, and, you know, you've got, you know, the first train spotting was a su- surprise success. Boyle was, was a nobody before you and McGregor wasn't really anyone before it made a lot of careers. And, you know, these people are all still in touch. They're all still friends. And they were always like, hey, wouldn't it be great to make the next book? Like the source material yeah. was there. And and there was a, a couple years back, you saw studios start to embrace. You know, this is where we also got Blade Runner from. But this idea of like if an author came to you and said, hey, I really want to do the sequel. It was like, yeah, that's a, it's a cult hit. Yeah. Let's let's do it again and see if we can make turn a cult hit into a box office hit. And the yeah. lesson that we learned was no, you can't. <laughs> well, it was it was it was a hit, just not in the states. Yeah, it was yeah. it was a hit everywhere else, but it made two point seven million dollars here, but it made like uh, forty two million, I guess pounds. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that this thing. It it, it may I'll say forty two point one million against an eighteen million dollar budget. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't so it a flop. Money. It wasn't a flop yeah. in any way, but but it's. Here it it definitely yeah. between it and, and Blade Runner ask the question like can you bet if something is culturally significant can you bet on people showing up for the sequel and um and yeah sadly in the states it was a no and and I was just telling you I I saw this opening night with two friends of mine we were very excited for it and I remember walking out of it and being like wow they nailed that this yeah. felt like what a sequel to Trains. I didn't know going into it. I hadn't read the books. I was like, well, how do you do a sequel yeah. to Train Spotting? It's about a yeah. bunch of like early twenties guys doing drugs and just being awful. And I yeah. was like, they're all they're all forty five now. Like how <laughs> how do I come back into that? And yeah. I think it it captures extremely well what it's like to be an adult and be like looking back on your on your really dumb days, but then also still be really dumb yourself. And yeah. um. Yeah, and then, and then I told you, I, I walked out of it. I was like, wow, they nailed that. And then I just no one was talking about it no, afterwards. No one saw it. Um, I said, not I bad reviews, seen... not good reviews, just just quiet. And I had never seen Train Spotting until actually earlier this year. Um, it was one that had like eluded me, eluded me for a while. And so I was interested to see how, how to do a sequel as well. And it was just basically, hey, we'll just do a reunion movie. Mm-hmm. It's basically what it is. Like It's, it's a reunion movie. It's... It's Ewan McGregor who plays Mark Mark Renton or Rent Boy. Uh, he he has like a heart attack or some heart issues, so he goes back home to Edinburgh in Scotland. It's a very it's a very like Scotland movie. It oh, uses yeah. the location incredibly well. Um, I don't think the movie has 
as much energy as the first movie, but I'm not saying that as a bad thing. It just it didn't it doesn't need to. Yeah, well, and, like, and also like you know, is this movie because ca- the first movie was capturing that feeling of being 21 and doing illicit substances and and you know the whole like choose choose you know that the the famous like choose, choose life. life. Yeah, you know the whole thing was like choose to they in their minds it was like choose to do drugs, choose to live on the edge instead yeah. of like selling out and being a, a suburban dad and this one is yeah. like yeah Renton's a, he's a suburban dad now and, yeah. <laughs> and and is he gonna backslide when he goes back to uh when he goes back to see his friends which there yeah. are some sequences that kind of capture that yeah that energy of the first one but the, it does, you know, yeah, overall yeah. it's like yeah i can't i can't have that energy i just had a heart attack I can't. Yeah, I can't have and that I'm energy. Like, of the and, I'm like, and, my, and I'm in my forty. I'm like forty four, and I just had a heart attack doing it on, on a treadmill. It, again, you we reunite the entire cast basically. And what I like too with this, and it's a new story decades later. What I like is that it does make references to the previous film, sometimes directly, but it's done in like it, it's not done in like a, a heavy handed way. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. it's the. Um, the choose life sequence where where uh mark mcgregor or mark you know mcgregor's character is telling it to um veronica who's the the younger woman who's with simon but mark's having kind of a thing with and he goes into the whole like choose life she's like yeah simon always says like choose life like what does that mean and it is kind of a great moment where mark or mcgregor as an actor just taps back in to that mindset of that character when he was in his 20s like choose life choose facebook choose snapchat do this do that like he taps into the the pacing and the thought of like this is what that character would be thinking at this moment in time like i said it doesn't have the same energy but it doesn't need to have the same energy yeah, because I think they're it, older it just like yeah that's the thing when i came out of it i was like is it does it have that dynamism of the first one? No. And I think also the excitement of the first one was you didn't know any of the people involved when it came out. Yeah. You were like, wow, where are these people coming from? But this one feels right. Like this is just, yeah. to me, it's what a sequel should feel like, which is what I was yeah. very impressed coming out of it. I was like this, everybody's, the arc of all these characters feels like faithful to the first one. And I'm, and it's, it's, very interesting to come back and watch these guys years later like that, that it was just interesting for me to do that and um and to also see them all i think they've all matured as actors in a, in a great way you know especially you and bremner i thought was this was i'm not yeah. always a fan of his but um i thought he was really his spuds arc in this was really good and i thought he handled it really well what's choose life what choose life Simon says it sometimes. He says, choose life, Veronica. <laughs> choose life. Choose life was a well-meaning slogan from a 1980s anti-drug campaign. And we used to add things to it. So I might say, for example, choose designer lingerie in the vain hope of kicking some life back into a dead relationship. <laughs> Choose handbags, choose high-heeled shoes, cashmere and silk to make yourself feel what passes for happy. Choose an iPhone made in China by a woman who jumped out of a window and stick it in the pocket of your jacket fresh from a South Asian fire trap. 
Choose Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and a thousand other ways to spew your bile across people you've never met. Choose updating your profile. Tell the world what you had for breakfast and hope that someone somewhere cares. Choose looking up old flames, desperate to believe that you don't look as bad as they do. So, we've kind of, we've, we've finished our recap of a lot of these movies and kind of discussing the genre. Just a recap on the tropes. We've talked about the sequel goes international or goes to a different location. We talked about sequel escalation with raising the stakes, the violence, the gore, the body count, uh, the meta-ness of sequels. Uh, sometimes in order to be fresh, you have to do a genre switch. New story decades later, main character becoming a mentor, exploring the lore and having part two start right after part one. So like it's about eight different things, but that's, I feel like all, uh, most of the sequels are that. I want to, I want to ask this one question before we do it in the stats and everything. Cause there's one series that was difficult for me to like figure out how to judge it in terms of sequel or whatever. And that's the Indiana Jones series mm -hmm. because Temple of Doom is the, is a prequel to Raiders but was kind of it feels like a sequel as well mm -hmm. and then last crusade is the the legit like direct sequel to raiders it's a weird kind of people don't like people it's weird to think that people usually like oh the the star wars prequels are before empire strikes back and new hope and all that but some people tend to not realize how temple of doom is like a prequel of Raiders, if that yeah. makes sense. And I think that is because, and you and I have discussed this before, I think that's because Temple of Doom is about Indiana learning the same lesson that he learned in Raiders. And to to say like, oh, it's okay, it's a prequel, I think kind of cheapens Raiders a little bit. Um, but then you you have Last Crusade. It's it's all about what people are learning. And, you know, even in, even in the big movies, I mean, even in Die Hard, Die Hard with a Vengeance is about john learning to work with someone else he's he's yeah. always been the guy who does this on his own period um and so with last crusade it's about the journey with his father and learning about himself learning the things that his bad traits that he has learned from his father by seeing them mirrored back to him through his father but yeah. the, the raiders is about taking kind of the mysticism seriously and understanding mm -hmm. that it can mean more to other people than it does to him who just sees these things as like historical artifacts. And that's yeah. what, that's what Temple of Doom is about. <laughs> yeah. So. so it's like, cool. You didn't learn anything. Yeah. And there's even the bit where like, and I, we didn't plan on talking about Indiana Jones, but the bit where he like goes for the gun. Cause in the first one, it's the whole funny thing. Oh, the guy's doing the sword. He just grabs the gun and shoots him. Mm -hmm. And then Temple of Doom, he does the same exact move, but there's no gun. I'm like, cool. That cheapens the bit. Yeah. And Raiders. Yeah. I think, he would do I that. think Lucas is just Lucas more than anyone else, like has prequels on the mind. Like prequels are tough. Yeah. And, and Lucas obviously always had Lucas has always said like he had always planned the Star Wars prequels from the start. And so he's obviously someone who thinks in that way. But um, yeah, I don't think Raiders is or, or Temple of Doom is a fun movie. But if you start to like nitpick it as a prequel, it doesn't really hold up. It's not a very well executed prequel. Yeah, it, it does put Indy Indy in a more like he is a more like womanizer than he is in Raiders. He's more he's more, I guess, more rough around the edges mm -hmm. um, as you see him in the beginning opening sequence. But anyway, uh, I just want to bring that up because that's one that like I have both Temple of Doom and last crusade on our list on our letterbox list called the color of money 
Uh, because Last Crusade is technically the the real sequel, but Temple of Doom is the one that was made second. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, on to stats. Highest rated. These will be pretty easy if you really... Godfather 2. Godfather 2 is number one, yes. Terminator 2. No, Terminator 2 not on, on this one, yeah. Uh, Toy Story 2. No, not Toy Story 2. Is it, is it Too Fast, Too Furious? No, that is not highest rated. <laughs> nor is that lowest rated. Uh, I can tell you. All right. Well, I'll, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you the decades. There's just so many on uh, this list. It's hard for me. There to... there are, there are. Okay, I'll just tell you. Dark Knight number two, and mm. four point four. Godfire Part Two is a four point five, by the way. And then Empire Strikes Back at a four point four as well. Okay. And then because that there was a tie, I'll say the third, or technically the fourth spot before Sunset, four point oh, three. Oh. Link later. All right. Lowest rated. Any guesses? uh there's there's a lot it could be on here uh from 1.7 dan to or the third spot deuce bigelow european gigolo starring rob schneider at a 1.7 on letterboxd wow uh number two mortal kombat annihilation at a 1.5 and then at rock bottom son of the mask starring jamie kennedy ah jamie kennedy at a 1.1 uh, most popular films on Letterboxd. Two of these have been said. Godfather. No. Dark Knight. Yes. I don't know what else. Star Wars Empire Strikes Back is oh, number yeah. three. And number two, a future episode this month, Blade Runner 2049. I got it. You know, I just, I can't, I'd never get myself in like the letterbox mindset <laughs> to go into these. Some of these. Uh, least popular. I'll just tell you these. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, from what I'll tell you the, the, the bottom three, uh, one to three, the least popular film on here, Don Q, which is a silent film. So i Dallas Fairbanks, Don Q son of Zorro, hmm. 141 people have watched off the letterbox list. Uh, number two, the sting two, with only like 400 watches. Number three, return of the seven, which is a sequel to the magnificent seven. Uh, and then most appearances, most sequel appearances. I will say this. This was shocking. <laughs> <laughs> this was actually shocking. <laughs> Any guesses? Uh, no. Cameos, can't, can't, cameos are included in this. Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah, Ocean's 12. Ocean's 12. How, can you guess how many appearances he's been or how many times he's been in a sequel before? I have no clue. 11 times he's wow. been in 11 sequels and that's just include that's just the first chapter sequel that's not including like die hard three four and five by the way so uh movies i forgot existed hold whole 10 yards yards mm-hmm. the sequel to whole nine yards um he's in uh gi joe 2 he's in red 2 mm. he's in uh split oh yeah oh. spoilers for split uh, Sin City, a Dame to Kill. Oh yeah, forgot that uh, happened. The Lego Movie second part. Oh yeah, he's barely in that. I remember his little yeah. cameo in that. Yeah. The Expendables two. Didn't know he was in that. Look who's talking to. <laughs> uh, Charlie's Angels full throttle. What? I did not remember that. Yeah. Uh, I guess Holton Yards, and I think that's. I'm probably uh, there's a few I'm probably missing. I can't believe the whole ten yards is a thing. Yeah, so uh, Bruce Willis, sequel king. 
Not including expendable, not including light live for your die hard, die hard three or good day to die hard. So, I mean, Eddie Murphy, I thought was going to be the guy because he's in five sequels, but no, it's, it's good old Bruce taking the cake. Um, last mentions, any movies you want to mention real quick that we did not discuss? Shrek two, baby. (laughs) The best Shrek movie of all the Shrek movies, best soundtrack. Fantastic film. Shrek, Shrek, Shrek two is great. I'm gonna say, let's see. I mean, I'm not saying Back to the Future too. I'm sorry. People. I think a, a, a weird one I'll throw out, like that that breaks, defies all the all the things we just talked about. And we did talk about Sam Raimi, but Evil Dead Two is just a head scratcher of a. Yeah, it, it's literally sequel. just oh, we'll remake Evil Dead, but but lean into it being funny because everyone seemed to think the first one was funny. So yeah, let's <laughs> do that one. Uh, now I'm, I'll say grumpier old men as one to mention. I'm kidding. No, uh, which I do like that movie a lot. <laughs> um, there's one I'm gonna say. It's this. This is an older film, but Curse of the Curse of the Cat People hmm. is a very unique movie that was. It's a 40s horror film, but was a big influence on Guillermo del Toro and like his uh his style of movie making. It's this kind of fairy tale, fairy tale horror film, which sums up del Toro. Um, but also was a movie that like they had a they had a script they had a script idea they were making and they're like hey let's just attach the characters from this previous film in here because we that made money. Mm-hmm. Um, also, and hopefully one day in the future we'll talk about this on the episode Batman Returns. I will I will would like to talk about that one day. Absolutely. Uh, and then yeah, uh, I mean, this is kind of a random question, but like where to start? Start with the Bride first movie in the series. I, guess. I mean, Bride if, if you yeah. I mean. Where to start is is the first of any of these movies. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is a tough one to make that call on. But yeah, if yeah. you're interested in studying specifically the tropes of sequels, I think Pride of Frankenstein is a great place to start. I agree completely. Yeah, so that's that's our intro episode of the sequel month. We're going to be diving into more, uh, more detailed examples in the future. We're doing next few episodes. We're going to be covering Beverly Hills Cop 2 uh, and Blade Runner 2049 in our solo episodes. And then our final episode of the month, We'll be delving into the career and filmography of James Cameron. And so, yeah. So, guys, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Medium. And, yeah, I think that's all I have to say on that. Thomas, anything else you want to say about sequels? Yeah, come back. Come back next week for part two. Part two. Part two. It will be hopefully just as good. We'll, we'll learn new things. We will. We'll, we'll learn new lessons next, we'll do next our, week. Ho- hopefully our episodes do not like decline. As should we I, should I record in a different room of my house? <laughs> <laughs> let's change things up. Let's just make it like a super like, what's, I was like, I was like, let's go outside and record. But should we do that right that now? That worked out so well so. for Ben that one time. Oh gosh. That's throwback. Uh, anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.